This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. see you again. Um, I'm bursting to preach. It's been a a good summer. We've had uh, uh, the Lord's Prayer. Pray with Jesus has been our series. Everybody's preached incredibly well. We are incredibly blessed to have great preachers. Uh, I said to somebody yesterday that my job is to do myself out of a job uh, and the way that some guys preached over the summer, it's getting close. Okay, so... um, this is a one-off preach. Uh, we're going to have um, some uh, three weeks. Uh, next uh, next three weeks, we're going to talk about what God has called us to do together as a church, uh, which we haven't really done before. We love to preach about Jesus. Uh, we love to preach about His uh, mission and what He does in our lives. We don't like help, self-help sermons with Jesus as our insightful uh, psychologist or motivational guru. We really want to uh, preach uh, uh, the Bible. Uh, and we, do, we love to focus on him. It's not really, we're not very relaxed focusing on ourselves. But this, this morning, we are going to focus on ourselves. Not that Jesus isn't going to get a mention, uh, but that we're going to almost do a bit of a heart check. So my time, I was on holiday and, um, uh, I was, I just felt prompted to read, uh, Revelation 2 and 3. I'd been reading through John actually and I just took a time out. I don't know why I did. Uh, felt prompted to read Revelation 2 and 3. It's basically some letters, uh, from, it's John's writing down what Jesus says to uh, seven churches, and and I felt prompted to um, to say, well, I wonder what God what God might say to God first. I honestly uh, didn't uh, think right. Okay, there's a whole lot of issues in God first, and I want to uh, take Revelation uh, two and kind of lock and load and give you all the kind of AK forty sevens when I come back from holiday and say what a miserable bunch you are. No, that's not what I wanted to do. I honestly felt uh, God prompt me. Uh, to do that. So, uh, uh, let me pray uh, and let's go to work. Lord Jesus, I pray for grace. Lord, I thank you that you're, you haven't come to condemn us. You've not come to drag us down, to force us on our faces, but you've come to lift us up in your grace. But Lord, I thank you that there's a place for challenge and there's a place for encouragement, a place for motivation and affirmation place for promise in your word. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that we'd uh, find you speaking to us, that we'd look at our hearts as individuals and as together, look at our potential challenges as a church, and that you'd truly speak to us this morning. Amen. Okay, so if you uh, look at the uh, letters of John, basically they've got three, uh, sorry, these uh, churches in Revelation 2 and 3, they've got basically three areas. They've got what affirmations, things that are going well, uh, and that's always good, isn't it? Uh, I remember Bill Heibel says, if you want to tell somebody where they need to improve, it's always good to go with five affirmations, ten affirmations before you go with one challenge. Jesus breaks the rules here. He's got seemingly got more challenges than affirmations, but he does have some affirmations. He has some corrections. This is what you're doing wrong. 
and he has some promises. And we're going to work through those. So it's interesting that the book of Revelation starts with an amazing chapter about John, the apostle John, having a vision of Jesus. It says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and I have this vision of Jesus. I mean, wouldn't that be great? You know, that you're actually in, you're, I don't know, we're in church, or you're having a quiet time on Sunday morning, or you're having a prayer, and like suddenly you see heaven open, and you see a vision of Jesus. Uh, uh, John's in prison, exiled on an island called Patmos, and he sees a vision of Jesus in, in um, Revelation chapter 1. And um, so let's just read it. It says, Among the golden seven golden lampstands, I saw someone like a son of man. It's a reference to Daniel it's a reference to what Jesus called himself, the Son of Man. It doesn't mean he's not God, but it's this man-like, God-like figure. He's robed in white, and his hair on his head was white. I feel good about that. Like wool. Uh, mine's more like thin thread. But anyway, with like wool. As white as snow, and his eyes were bl- like a blazing fire. His feet were like glowing bronze in his furnace, and his voice like the sound of rushing waters, a mighty waterfall. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. He placed his hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And look, I am alive forevermore. John has this incredible revelation of the one who's died and has rose again, the one who controls all things. And then in chapter 4, often uh, we love to read from chapter 4. Chapter 4 gives us a glimpse of the throne of heaven. Uh, A longer chapter, but just some verses. It says, At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven, with someone sitting upon it. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder. Day and night, those around the throne never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. This is the, 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 the Jesus and the glory. And it's interesting, I was reading a, a book by a guy called Eugene Peterson. And it says, we often want to get Jesus and then straight to glory. But in the middle of chapter, between 1 and 4, there's these annoying chapters called the church. It's almost like we'd quite like to have, uh, uh, we'd quite to have Jesus, we'd quite like to have heaven, but really, do we have to have church? You know, it's kind of so messy and awkward and people are so, kind of, they annoy you and they disappoint you and they frustrate you and preachers go on for too long. I'm just, you know, and whatever. And the work, you just think, we've all got all reasons. Why do we have to have church? And you, you move around town. Oh, I wish I had a church here. Find this church. Something wrong, something wrong. And we think, why church? But actually, Eugene Peterson says, in the bit I was reading, he says, a believing community, that's a church, a believing community is the context for the life of faith. Love cannot exist in isolation. Away from others, love bloats into self-centered pride. Grace cannot be received privately. Cut off from others, it's perverted into entitlement and greed. Hope cannot develop and remain healthy in solitude. Separated from community, over-ripens in the form of idle fantasies. No gift, no virtue can develop and remain healthy apart from the church. And then he says this, the only way from Christ to heaven is the church. And what we're going to find about these churches is actually you get glorious Jesus and glorious heaven and, and in the middle you get these churches that are kind of sometimes good and sometimes bad. And, and that would be us. There's good things about God first and there's stuff you think, oof, really? And, and so we, we want to 
we want to look at those churches. I'm not going to do them one by one, but basically these are real churches in real places. Uh, they're in Asia Minor, or what is currently Turkey. Uh, and I, I think one commentator said it's like a postal route. I thought a guy must have to go, get up very early to deliver the post through those towns. But basically it's one Roman postal route. It's one Roman postal code. Uh, and, um, and so, but these are real churches. These are not kind of imaginary churches. These are real churches with people that bought food in the local market, had jobs in the local economy, that raised their families, got married, uh, sorry, other way around, got married and then raised their families. And you know, and all those kind of challenges, they, they were real. The, Jesus is not writing to some hypothetical churches. He's not kind of taking a different type of types of churches. Well, let's take a Pentecostal church, we'll take a charismatic, take an Anglican, take a Catholic. No, he hasn't done that. These are real churches and these are real challenges that people faced. They raised, they were lived in a culture uh, uh, probably more, increasingly more antagonistic to Christianity than our culture. Our culture, it's not cool to be a Christian. It certainly wasn't cool, cool in that culture to be a Christian. And increasingly they would suffer persecution and challenge. Paul actually writes seven letters to seven churches and his are really long. John's, uh, Jesus gives uh, John, seven letters, and they're absolutely right to the point. They basically have got this structure. They start with Jesus. They say something that's going bad, something that's going well, something that's going bad, and a promise. So let's start each one. Each one starts with Jesus. So let's summarize. These are some of the things that were said. And they're all interesting. All characteristics taken from chapter 1. All things about Jesus that he applies to his church. So it says the church in Ephesus, from Jesus, the one who walks among the lampstands. The lampstands represent the churches. And Jesus walks amongst the churches. It's almost a picture of um, a priest who would, there'd be lamps in the temple and the priest would keep the, keep the light burning, keep the incense burning in the, in, the, in, the, in the temple. He was the one who kept them going. It's almost like the, the, the churches are like that. Jesus goes around from church to church tending them. I know you think, well, he might sit in heaven and just have other things to do. He's on social media or something. But no, he's, com- he's involved in every church. He's the one who walks amongst the lampstands. And the church in Smyrna, he describes himself as the first and last, the one who was dead and alive in Pergamon, the one who holds the sharp two-edged sword. That's the word of God in his mouth. I always say this wrong. It's Thyatira. Uh, Thyatira. The uh, one with eyes of fire and feet of burning bronze. To Sardis, the one who holds the stars, the creator. Philadelphia, the holy and true as the keys of David who opens what no one can shut. And then in Laodicea, the beginning of the creation and the amen, the faithful and true witness. This is Jesus. He gets described as his characteristics form in the church. And we need to understand about God first that actually uh, it's not founded by me. It's not founded by Advance or New Frontiers. Uh, uh, you know, ch- church, churches were, are not founded by John Wesley if you're a Methodist. They're not founded by Henry VIII if you're an Anglican. They're not found by, founded by the Pope if you're Catholic. They're not founded even by the Apostle Paul or John, even though we write of them starting churches. Churches are started by Jesus. Churches belong to Jesus. Jesus cares about churches. Jesus is interested in the health of churches. He's not indifferent about churches. We often see churches on a website. You Google churches, it gives you a list we don't know anything about them. We have a view of what it's like. But Jesus knows each church. He knows each person in each church. He's looking at the, 
not at the, he doesn't look at our, our um, whether we've got a good website. He doesn't sort of taste the coffee and say, oh, that's quite good. Or oh, you've got a quite good menu, haven't you? He's not interested in those things. I don't think he's interested in the giftedness of the leaders, although that doesn't matter to him. I don't think fundamentally he writes a church on that. He doesn't even write a church by its statement of the faith. You might think, shock horror. What he rates the church is by what are you are like. What we are like. He's not interested in the, in the externals that say this is what we're like. He's interested in what we're really like inside. He looks at the character of every member of the gospel community. He looks inside what we neatly present to each other. You know, sometimes when you're having a bad day, and, and the worst thing you want to do is come to church and you say, how's it going? Fine. You know, are you, you, things are going terrible. Or you can be one of these other people. How's it going? It's always bad. You think, oh, you better not ask them. If you ask that person, it's, they always say it's terrible. But, you know, we, we, we can never seem to, to get it right. We're always kind of hiding behind. Uh, but what happens is Jesus gets beyond the kind of hello, house things? Did you have a nice holiday? He gets beyond that and right into the integrity uh, and the intentions and actions of our heart. Jesus affirms these things in the heart culture of the churches. So Ephesus for untiring hard work and perseverance, intolerance of sin. Smyrna for brave suffering. Pergamon for courageous, faithful witness to Jesus. Thyatira for growing love and faith and developing in discipleship. For Philadelphia, obedience and patient endurance. Two churches don't even get a thank, don't even get like you're doing well. The church in Sardis and the church in Laodicea are not commended for anything. I thought about it, I thought, whoa, it'd be interesting. You know, what Jesus seems to be interested is not actually mentioning kind of Spiritual characteristics in that sense. He's, he's mentioning actions. He's not mentioning things you think or things you think that's a nice idea. He's mentioning things you do. He wants, he wants the integrity of what you are to work itself out in what you do. So Jesus is talking about actions here. He's talking about perseverance and, and being brave and, 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 and kind of pressing on in challenge and, and, and being obedient and all that. He's, he's, he's after obedient action. I just wrote some opposites as I thought about that. I thought, it's after untiring hard work and service. Oh, flip. Why did they always go on about that church? Not lazy consumerism. Consumerism says, what's in it for me? How can I have an easy life? Jesus commends untiring hard work and service. If you love church, you'll bend your back and serve it. Jesus is church. He loves it. gave himself for it. Why shouldn't we? He commends patiently keeping going, not quitting in frustration. If you plant a church, Zach, you're going to get to those points. So if you're involved with Andy and Vic and they plant a church, you're going to get to the point. So it's not going to happen. It's frustrating. Where are the people? No one's getting saved. You get all those frustrations. I get those frustrations. You probably get those frustrations. You think, why isn't God first like this? Why isn't that there? Why isn't that there? You probably get those frustrations. But you don't quit. Courageously following Jesus in the face of opposition, not compromising to the culture. Bravery, suffering for Jesus, not ducking the real challenges. Discipleship, disciples that grow. One of the churches, it says, you're doing more than you did at first. So it's not like you, you start off well and you end up doing less and less. No, you did more than you did at first. Not disciples that drift from bold, risk-taking faith to safe indifference and attending. Jesus is looking for those things to affirm, and he affirms them in those churches. So I thought, well, what would Jesus affirm in God first? Maybe I just wrote this. I thought, I know a little of your reputation. I know you have a little reputation. We haven't got a reputation. We're not like 
Oh yeah, I know God first. You know, I meet people and they say, you say from Cheltenham and they say you're from that church. They don't say, oh, you're from God first, I've heard of you. Nobody does that. We're of little reputation. Our strengths are kind of well-kept secrets. Nobody knows about it. Nobody knows so much about it. But I think Jesus says, I know you. I know you. And I know you're alive and I delight in you. I think if Jesus sort of said, What's his, this is what Jesus said to the church, I think he'd say this. I, you know, I, I love the fact that you love the gospel. If, if, I think this, this church loves the gospel. It, it loves the truth about Jesus. When we break bread and when we talk about Jesus, I don't find you thinking, oh, can you do something more interesting? You know, can you talk about something else? I think, I know you love, I know you love hearing about Jesus. I know you love saying, yeah, his story is my story. I, I know you love the gospel. And I know that you love when we make much of Jesus, when we celebrate Jesus, when we preach Jesus, when we break bread. I know, I know you love that as a church. You might think, well, why shouldn't you? You know, but actually there's some churches, they don't love that. They'll talk about all sorts of other things. You think, is Jesus going to get a mention here? I'm not sort of trying to criticize anyone say, but actually it's, it's great that we love, we love Jesus here. It's great that we love talking about him. It's great that he's the hero every week. It's great that every, every sermon finishes with the cross. Every, uh, uh, every uh, week finishes with breaking bread. It's great. We love that. I, don't, I hope you're not bored of that because I don't think we are. I find when we talk about that, when Tom preached last week, you know, people came up to him, I'm sure, and said, oh, great. Not, oh, you're a very gifted preacher. They, they love it when you talk about Jesus. I spoke at my mother-in-law's funeral on Wednesday. Loads and loads and loads of people there. It was fantastic. But... 450, 500 people. I had so many people say, you're a great, you're a great preacher. And I thought, oh, flip, I'm getting big-headed. And I kept saying, but I've got great content. The Bible's great content. Jesus is great content. I believe we, Jesus would commend us in that church for saying the gospel. We believe it. It's not just, when I was a kid, the gospel was something you did to become a Christian and then you concentrated on other things. But now we say, no, the gospel's how you, how you get saved, it's how you do your marriage, it's how you do your money, it's how you do your relationships, it's how you do your life. I think God, Jesus would commend us for that. I think the other thing that's obvious, I mean, actually, I might, might ask you, what, what, if, turn to the person next to you, I mean, if you're, not, if you're a visitor, you might think, hmm, I don't know what to say. Turn to the person next to you and say, what do you think is the strength of God first? Just so let's see if we can come up with the same one. What do you think? What do you think? What, what do people say about God first? Oh, that's, I love that about it. Community. Hands up if you've got community. <laughs> yeah, we're great. We're, not, we're just a kind of nice bunch of friends. To, to be honest, community, you know, I'd love other things, but actually it's great to be known for community. Um, I, I, I'm trying to look around. I don't think it's here. A guy came. Uh, he, he, said, uh, he said, this is the most friendly church I've ever been to. It's like, well, people said hello to me. You know, people said, hey, who's your name? Where are you from? Do you want to come around for dinner? Do you want to be my friend? <laughs> That's just me because I haven't got any. Please be my friend. You're a new person. Maybe you'll like me. <laughs> Although those of you that like, you've got all your friendships sorted, you know, you don't bother talking to anyone. But I'm like talking to every visitor. I get excited about every new person that comes to this church. Don't we? Don't we? It's not like, oh, we've got it all sorted. They're annoyance, these new people. We think, oh, we love it. Is that because we're small and it's just because we're desperate? Well, maybe. But I think there's more than that. I think that we understand that God is a loving community of three. 
That he wants to include us in his family, in his relationship, in his fathership and sonship. He wants to pour his spirit on us. That's what community is an expression of the gospel. So I'm glad we're good at that. And I think Jesus would say, God first, well done, you're good at that. You might say, well, no one speaks to me in tea and coffee time. And I'd say to you, well, you don't, you can always speak to people yourself. It's true. I mean, I know that my, my wife read a book. Uh, this might be a real long mind in two sermons. Um, my wife read a book called The Introverted Charismatic. And basically what it's saying is, if you're an introvert, this is a tough church to be. I'm sorry. You know, because we say, oh, go over there and have tea and coffee. And why don't you go around to people's houses and be friendly? You think, I just want to come and sing songs and go home. I'm sorry, we're not very good at that. But we want to be friends with you. We understand that there's people that are more introverted and more extroverted, but we want to do community. I think Jesus would commend us for that. I think there's things we're growing in. I think he'd commend us for our willingness to serve. I love it when I come down here uh, before the start of Sunday. We gather about 10 o'clock just to pray for the meeting. And, and I love it that there's loads and loads and loads and loads of people with, with lanyards on saying, I'm, I'm here to serve. I mean, a few of you moan about it. You know, uh, Flick resigned because she couldn't cope with you moaning, so Vic's got the job. <laughs> Vic said, I realised what, what Flick had to put up with the last few years. Some of you do moan and say, why have you put me on this rotor? You know, whatever. But most of you are great. Most of you are really great at serving. You want to serve. Some of you say, no, I'm not. I just do it in sufferance. That's the worst email I get. The, Here's the rotor. <laughs> well, we'll pray for you, Andy. <laughs> oh, it wasn't you. Sorry. He's just put himself on every other week now. It's your fault. <laughs> okay, and, and, and I think we're remarkable in giving. We're, I, think we're remark- I think we've got some growing to do in giving, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. But I think financially, for a small church, you give really well. You get it. You get it that, 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 that it takes money to do, to do mission. It takes money to support churches. It takes money uh, to, to get, the, the, get the gospel out. It takes money to do that. We, we travel fairly light, I mean, we pay me. You can have your discussions about that later. Hopefully we'll pay someone else going forward. But we, we don't have loads of overheads. We, we try and put our money out there. But actually, you're, a lot of you are great at giving. And I thank you for everybody that stepped in and giving. I think Jesus would affirm us on those things. So feel affirmed. Do you feel affirmed? Okay, because batten down now. <laughs> Jesus, after he's affirmed these churches, he then says, I've, I have this against you. He doesn't even soften it, does it? He doesn't say... I find this a little bit challenging about you that sometimes could, you could work and I have this against you. This is the God who sits upon the throne who's dead and is alive again and he, po- he points the finger and says, I've got this against you. How did you bump into Jesus? And he said, I've got this against you. I thought you were Mr. Jesus, gentle Jesus, make and mild. Now as he was reading the, the gospel, I don't, which were you reading, Mark? John. She was reading John. I was in him. But she, we kept saying to each other as we're having croissant and coffee, and saying, isn't Jesus incredibly provocative? He goes around and he's very loving, but he's absolutely provocative. He doesn't let anybody get away with anything. What do you think? Well, is that not very loving? No, that's incredibly loving. If you're a parent and you let your kids get away with it, it's not very loving. He is committed to our correction. He's committed to sorting us out. He's committed to saying, come on, watch this. So, five churches... Um, five churches get that I have this against you. The first two, you kind of, well, I'd expect that. So the first church is a, a church called, uh, the church in Pergamon, 
And he, he says, I have this against you, that you're indifferent to heretical teaching. In other words, here's a church that just believes any old thing. It's got some, some false teachers coming in saying, you can, um, you can go to the temple, you can sleep with the temple prostitutes at school. Because your body is really not what's really, what it's really about. It's all about being spiritual. And they've got these teachers coming in and they've believed it and, and they've just swallowed it all up. And so often the letters that Paul's writing is trying to correct wrong ideas. But saying, you know, no, you can't get to heaven by just trying to be good. God does, God, it's actually God's grace, his freedom. There's letters all about that. False teaching everywhere in the first century. Roll it on 20 centuries. It is unbelievable how much nonsense is out there. Sorry. You know, it is unbelievable. I know that it's great that there's the internet and there's a ten, 10 channels showing preachers on your TV set, and, and that's all great. But man, just be careful. That just don't believe everything that you hear on there just because it says it's Christian stuff. But be careful where you're getting your truth from. You know, I'd hope that you, you trust me and, and the leaders here to, to teach orthodox Bible truth. We don't want to go off on some kind of tangents. So, so let's do that. We don't want to tolerate uh, Bible teaching. People might quote the Bible. doesn't mean they're preaching the Bible. We need to be clear. We need to be clear. You know, it's great to listen to podcasts from, from churches and preachers from other churches in the car, but just be careful. You know, say to somebody, I'm listening to this person. You think, hmm, great. But just be careful what you wash your brain in. So you'd think, well, God's got, clearly God's going to be bothered about it. And we think that's top of his list, actually. But the list draws down. The next one, the church in Thyatira. I still can't get it out of my head what the right one is. The church in Thyatira. It's the next one you think, well, of course, that Christians are obsessed with that one, aren't they? Jesus is obsessed. You tolerate sexual immorality. We must fight for purity in our own lives and in the lives of this church. We must. The world is absolutely awash with sex, with porn, with multiple partners. There's, there's no boundaries anymore. Everything goes, everything's fine. And that, that invades us. You know, we don't just sit here in our little bubble of moral purity. It's telling us all the time to do things that are, are wrong. There should be sex happening in this church between man and wife. And everything else shouldn't be happening. In your head, on your computer, with your girlfriend, with someone else's wife, husband, it's in the world, it shouldn't be here. It shouldn't be here. We need to root it out. Sexual immorality, if you suffer from a sexual addiction, your faith will be weak. It is impossible to serve Sexual addiction and God. You'll have weak faith. I know that people who are in this, who struggle in this area, they don't like to talk to me. Maybe they don't like to talk to me for a whole other reasons, but I'm, I'm, I'm grabbing onto this one as potential. They don't like to talk to me because I might ask them, how's it going? Are you up to no good? Let's keep it pure. We'd expect Jesus to make those kind of corrections, wouldn't they? Yeah, churches are obsessed with theology and sex. But actually, he drills down further into what I, I've dis- I thought is basically, I put Jesus' harshest words 
are reserved for the slow drift towards going through the religious motions. So he doesn't like theological craziness. He doesn't like sexual immorality, but he doesn't like fake religion. You read the Gospels, Jesus doesn't like fake religion. He doesn't like churches and Christians that go through the motions. Now, I don't think we're close to that, but I think that it's helpful. As I read this, I thought I had to check my heart. I had some quotes from um, Spurgeon and Finney that were like bazookas. I could have nailed you down on attendance at prayer meetings and Sunday meetings and giving. And And I'm reading and I'm feeling, oh God. But actually, it's not just about those legal things. It's about the heart attitudes. So the church in Laodicea, I, I spoke to somebody, we went and, uh, wait, actually Dan and Kobe, I might embarrass them, went with Dan, we were with Dan and Kobe on a bank holiday, and Kobe said, um, I'm looking forward to you preaching, it's been a while since you preached, it's been nice, what are you preaching? I said, Revelation 2 and 3, she said, oh, I think Dan will stay away. <laughs> I said, I, she was on tea and coffee, I said, is Dan here? When he turned up, I thought, well done, Dan. <laughs> it's tough stuff, this. This is not good. If, you were, if this was your church, if this is God first, please help us. This is what he says to the church in Laodicea. I know your deeds. Yes, I know you do, Jesus. That you neither, you might be familiar with this, but it's staggering stuff. You're neither hot or cold. I wish you were either one or the other. But because you're neither lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to vomit you, spew you out of my mouth. This is our world, isn't it? I, you say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing. But do you realise that you're wretched and poor and pitiful and blind and naked? I counsel you, said Jesus, buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you become rich, and white clothes to wear to cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those who I love, I correct and discipline. So become zealous and repent. You know, the challenge for lots of Christians in lots of parts of the world is actually that, that they, they actually physically suffer for Jesus. You know, Christians are the most persecuted religion in the world. In the Middle East. You know, in parts of, of Asia. Massive persecution. They face imprisonment, they they face torture, they face death, they face losing their jobs. We don't face any of that. And I'm glad we don't. I'm really glad we don't. But actually, the battle we face is much, much more subtle. The challenge we face is much more subtle. I'll read it from here. The attack the Western church faces is the slow suffocation of wealth and comfort. It seems nothing cools the fire of a red-hot Christian more than an easy life. The radical become reluctant and the prayerful become passive. The truth is, your comfy life, although I'm glad if you've got it, some of you you got tough lives here financially, tough lives socially, but Cheltenham is a comfy place. And the challenge with comfy places is they make you forget Jesus. You think, I've got everything I need. You don't need to pray for God to give you your daily bread. you just got plenty. You, don't, you stop asking, you stop believing, you stop pressing forward. 
It was great at the uh, uh, Naomi's mum's celebration. Uh, there was a story told in the very early days uh, of the church uh, where Ben and Mo basically decided to, to give big. And so they'd got some money. There was a lot of money in those days, uh, you know, but they'd got money, all their money from their wedding present. They'd basically bought, a, I think they'd bought a bed and they'd got all the rest left over. And then there was a special offering at the church that they were uh, leading and part of. And they put all their wedding money in. And you could say, whoa, that's a huge sacrifice. But actually, it keeps you trusting Jesus. It keeps you on the edge and saying, we're going to trust Jesus. Ben said to me, every time him and Mo sat down and said, shall we give? They said, yes, let's do it. Nazi's mum said, let's do a double tithe. Let's give 20%. They still do that. Because comfort and wealth makes you not trust Jesus. I'm not saying give all your money away and trust Jesus. What I'm saying is you have to have a sense where we take a risk, where we we believe God. One of the things about a church plant when you start it is there's nothing here and you have to believe God. So if those of you that were here in the first half a dozen, dozen people, you had to pray like mad that God would do stuff and you, you had to kind of, we had to believe into being. Pray into being. But now when you've got a few people, you think, oh, the church will sort that out, or the institution will sort that out. It's so easy to become flabby. It's so easy to become lukewarm. It's so easy to become self-sufficient and half-hearted. Instead of being radical and saying, I'm going to believe God, someone else can do that. Instead of being prayerful, someone else can pray for that. God first, let's not be lukewarm. Let's constantly be hot. I read stats of about churches... And I always want God first to be different. I don't want us to be the same. Not because there aren't better churches than us, there are. Even in this town. But is I want us to be different. I want the stats to say they're there. They're all in. They're radical. They go for it. They turn up. They pray. They, they believe God. They're on mission. That's what I want. I don't want to just put on a good show. And you think, well, I'll go to that one. Guys, let's be hot for Jesus. Second one, the church in Sardis. Jesus says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I found your deeds unfinished in the sight of God. Remember, therefore, that what you've received and were taught and hold it fast and repent. It's a tragedy here. The church in Sardis, it's got this reputation for being a, a great church. But Jesus says, it's barely alive. It's on spiritual life support. Now, I don't know what gives a church a great reputation in the first century, but I do know what does it in the 21st century. So you can be like, oh, you're a church plant, or you're the new church in town. Well, not now the new church in town, there's some other church plants, but... You know, you're the church planter in town. Oh, wow, yeah, right. There must be something great about you. Or you can say, well, well we're, the, we're, the church that, we're the church that does conferences. Or, or we're the church that releases albums. You know, or we're the church in, in London that does this. Or we're the church with the international reputation. And you know what? The sad thing can happen is that you, you, Jesus is saying about this church in Sardis, not every church that does conferences and albums and everything is dead. Don't mishear me. But the danger is to look on the outside stuff and say, this church is alive and buzzing. 
But Jesus is looking on the inside stuff. He says your spiritual life is draining away. Maintaining the appearance of being radical is more important than your connection with Jesus. I, I, you know, if somebody came to me and said, I'd give you this church of a thousand people, but you know, it's really going to be dead on the inside. Would you take it? I hope we'd say no. I hope we'd say no. Satan came to Jesus and said, I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world if you bow down to me. And Jesus said, no deal. You cannot lose connection with God. We mustn't lose connection with God. What are the signs of connection with God? Wholehearted love, faith, service, patient endurance, faithful witness, growing discipleship. But the thing is, the church in Sardis leaves all these tasks unfinished. The church talks a good game. But it's all talk and half-hearted mediocrity. I, I feel most sad sometimes, not to criticise you, but to, 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 to hear when we talk a good game and we don't do it. It is time to do it, guys. I've talked about being missional. It's time to be more out there for people that don't know Jesus. We've talked about doing social action, haven't we, Steve? And we, Steve and I have talked and said, you know, it's the worst thing is when we talk about it and everyone says yes, but we don't go and do it. We don't want to be that. We don't want to be that. We don't want to leave the works unfinished. It's time to wake up, says God, Jesus to the church in Sardis. Let's be a sharp, let's be awake. No hint of deadness in us. Last one. I told you it's hard going. But you know we need to health check ourselves. Okay, last one. The church in Ephesus faces the same slide to half-hearted spiritual mediocrity. And this is probably the toughest one of all, which is why I left it to the end. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent, that means turn and do the opposite. Do the things you did at first. And then he says this staggeringly to the church in Ephesus. If if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. This is the church in Ephesus that Paul wrote to, that he finishes the letter by saying, I commend you for your faith and love. And less than 10 years, Jesus is saying, you've forgotten all that. Your love's grown cold. You're half-hearted. You don't do the things that you did. Finney, uh, Charles Finney, in, in, in a, I mean, re, if you want to feel challenged, Google Charles Finney, backslider of the heart. He talks about how Christians start off on fire and then what happens is they just drift away to slow mediocrity. And he said people become Christians and they think, wow, it's so exciting, but then they realise they catch the mediocrity from everybody else and that's what you get. Imagine if someone said this about your marriage. You know, you've forsaken your first love. Our society expects love to grow cold. It expects love to be full of a flush of excitement and passion and breathless excitement. And then after 10, 20 years, it expects it to be running thin by then. I mean, it's sad if that happens in your marriage, and if that is in your marriage, you've got to keep working, keep believing, keep connecting, keep being together. But that shouldn't happen in church. One of the things that's exciting about when you're first dating, when you're first together, and I've said this before, is that you, when you fall in love, 
Nothing's too much trouble, is it? You want to be close to the one you love. My wife's here. I wish she was on kids today. Uh, <laughs> you want to be close to the one you love. You want to spend hours in conversation. You dwell on any words they write. I don't know. People don't write love letters anymore, do they? I think you, you're lucky if you get a text saying, do you want to meet up, baby? You know, <laughs> it's not the crafted uh, kind of 12-line sonnet of Shakespeare in England, is it? Uh, but you dwell on the words that are written. Nothing is too much effort for your love. You want to tell everyone about your love. And it's great when, 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 when there's an engagement, because the, the woman's kind of walking around like this, isn't she? <laughs> so, oh, sorry, did you see my ring? <laughs> yeah? They're excited about it. There's a buzz about it. You, you, you can't hear anything negative about it. When you lose your first love, it's just the opposite. What are the signs of losing your first love? You find you don't really need his presence. Oh, put there. Being in his presence loses its priority. When you are first dating, you know, you, if your wife, my wife was uh, up in Stratford and we were in Bath and she was on like an English literature kind of groovy tour and she said, oh, we've got a spare ticket. I thought, ba-da, I'm there. <laughs> in the car I go, driving, you know, I'd, 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 it wasn't too much trouble. I just want to be with her. I do still want to be with you, honey. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in dangerous ground here using this as an illustration. <laughs> but do you understand that? When, you want, when you're first a Christian, you want to be with him. And then when you've been a Christian a while, take it or leave it. The stat that really frustrated me that Abby Kang told me is that average attendance at church by Christians is 6 out of 10. I know you've got busy lives and you've got weekends away and birthdays and anniversaries and dogs' birthdays and friends' birthdays and parties and stag do's. I know you've got all those things and that's okay. But you know, it made me, I felt sad about that, Abby. It got under my skin, didn't it? And it's not about turning up. It's about saying, I want to be here for him. Spurgeon talked about attendance at prayer meetings. I'm not even going to go there. What about conversation with Jesus? Prayer withers away. Prayer withers away. I read the stuff from from Spurgeon and I thought, Lord Jesus, help me. What does my prayer life, what does your prayer life say about your love for Jesus. Is it a short tox, tip, uh, tick box exercise and then you're on to social media? Maybe the Bible used to excite you, the words of God used to excite you, you used to read it over and over, a bit like a, a love letter from a, somebody you love and now it's like, oh, it's a bit of a drag, isn't it? I've read it before, been there before, done the Bible in the year, don't even know what to read, so... Well, whatever. Perhaps serving now is too much effort. I mean, Nezel will talk to me afterwards and probably. <laughs> but you know, when, when there's first love, you're just willing to serve, aren't you? You're willing to serve. And when this love grows cold, it's too much effort. Let's keep serving. Let's keep serving here, not just rotors, but let's keep serving, loving, pouring out our lives for others. And lastly, how do you know if you're losing your first love for Jesus? It never overflows to anybody who doesn't know him. 
The tragedy of here, and I'm landing with just a little bit, one more thing, but the tragedy here is Jesus says to that church, I'm going to take my candlestick away. I'm going to take my presence away. And I think there must be churches. I'm assuming God hasn't taken his candlestick away from us. We, I, I don't think we're there, are we? No, we're not there. No, we're not there. But the thing is, if a church gets cold, God just says, I'm, 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 I'm done, thank you. Just takes his candlestick. It goes through and snuffs the wick. Churches might go on for 50 years, 100 years. Never know that Jesus has snuffed it out a long time ago. We don't want to be that. Let's end quickly. Jesus ends with promises. So affirmations, challenges, promises. I'm going to roll them all together in one hybrid. It says, they, always, they all start with, to the one who is victorious. Who's that? Jesus. So we're victorious because he's victorious. So this is for you. I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, to not be hurt at all by the second death. I'll give some of the hidden bread of life. We're going to break bread in a a moment and eat Jesus, the bread of life. I'll dress you in white, robes of purity. I'll never blot out your name from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father. I'll make you a pillar in the temple of God. Never again will they leave my presence. I'll write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down from heaven from God. What does Jesus use to motivate these churches to live well? He motivates them with eternity. We had a guy, a friend of mine called Greg Tate, who preached when we were away, and he basically took a... It's not my illustration, it's Francis Chang's. He says, imagine this is your life, this lead that goes off into eternity. This is your life. And Francis Chan said, when he did the illustration, he says, see this little bit here? This is, this is your 70 years. This is your 80 years. This is your schooling and your marriage and your job and your house and your worries and your anxieties and your weekend holidays. This is all that. Jesus says about those, I've got some things against you. But how does he motivate us to live well here? He says, see this life here that goes on forever. Life in my presence, a life of glory and hope. A life of fullness, a life of feeding on Jesus, a life in his presence. I promise you that. I promise you that. So think carefully about this. Because we're living for this. Jesus promises a glorious eternity that begins now. His life, our life. His wholesomeness, filling our brokenness. His Father, our Father. His presence, our dwelling. His eternity, our eternity.
For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.